Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Welcome to Episode 3. Today I have the great pleasure of chatting to Mel Schilling, psychologist and relationship coach. You might know Mel as one of the experts on Married at First Sight Australia. Mel has worked on the show as an expert for the last four seasons. But that's not all Mel does. She also works with organisations, individuals and the media on all things relationship. So everything from dating and intimacy through to business negotiation and influencing. And today, Mel and I are chatting about her tips for relationships, new and old, what it's like to be a TV psychologist, and I'm going to ask her how she juggles a family in Bali with work in Australia. Welcome, Mel. Thanks, Alan. What an amazing intro. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to be here on your new podcast. Well, it's exciting to have you here. I'm going to ask, firstly, what led you to your work in psychology and relationship coaching? Because that's not where you started out, is it? No. Well, as you know, we, we both crossed paths a lot, didn't we, earlier we in have. our careers in the corporate side of psychology. Yes. I guess my, the path that led me here was really a personal one. And it was about making a whole bunch of mistakes and dating wrong for about 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) And what actually happened is I finally got to the point where I decided to start practicing what I preach. And, you know, as psychologists, that's something we don't often do, (laughs) but it took me a while to get there. And what actually happened was the insight that a lot of the advice I was giving my clients in the corporate work that I was doing could actually relate to my own dating life. And so I started to apply principles like dating, my personal dating brand, you know, something we learned from corporate about Mm -hmm. personal branding Mm -hmm. and strategic and setting goals and having a positive mindset and all of the things that we apply really successfully in careers, I started experimenting with applying those to my dating life and my results started to change. Wow. So it's, it's like a personal branding exercise. Yeah, well, I really see that as part of it. Mm-hmm. And look, I've been definitely accused of being unromantic and <laughs> clinical and not very sexy when it comes to giving dating advice in such a strategic way. But, you know, this is what I found worked for me and it, it works for my clients too. Okay. Because I, you probably won't remember this, but this is for our listeners. Here's a little insight into uh, Mel's relationship superpowers. So <laughs> you and I, as you said, we we cross paths. We go way back and work together as consultant psychologists in the corporate field many years ago. And I remember you and I were on a trip. I think it was to South Australia doing a consulting gig, and we're on the plane. And I was lamenting my um, challenges around relationships. So I think we were probably around our early, well, I was my early thirties, I think. And the fact mm-hmm. that I didn't seem to meet the guys who 
wanted the white picket fence and wanted to settle down and this kind of stable life. I kept finding guys who wanted to travel or build businesses or have adventures. And that wasn't what I thought I wanted. And so I was lamenting this and you just turned to me and looked at me and said, well, maybe you don't want the white picket fence and the stability and all of that stuff. Maybe you are attracting these people because what you really want is travel and adventure and, you know, building a business or all of those sorts of things. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it like that. And in actual fact, on on reflection over many years, because the guy that I met had just met then, is now my partner of 13 and a half years and the father to my two boys. (laughs) Uh-huh. And we've never had a really the, the kind of white picket fence. You know, we, we never bothered with a, a wedding. We never bothered to get married. We've, we've sort of stayed as partners. We have traveled and keep moving places. We don't seem to be able to settle down and that's totally okay. And he fully supports me in all of my crazy, you know, enterprises and, and business ideas. And I think on reflection, I realized that what and and what you I think really were able to see right at that moment that I couldn't see was that what I thought I wanted wasn't really what I wanted I think looking back there's no way I would have been happy with that very kind of stable conventional type life is is that the kind of story you hear from other people or is that that discrepancy between what I thought I wanted and what I actually wanted Mm. or what was maybe best for me I couldn't see at that time Absolutely, Alan. It's really common. And I think what we tapped into on that aeroplane flight was <laughs> one time of your highest value. Yeah. You're, one yep. of your values is adventure. Yeah. And just looking at the lifestyle that you choose and love and enjoy and chase, it is all about, you know, putting yourself out there, stepping outside that comfort zone, being flexible and adaptable and responding to opportunities of, as they present themselves. Mm. That's a big mm. part. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, now you've found this amazing guy to walk that journey with you. So that's you playing out your values in a really positive way in relationships. So that's definitely what I talk to my clients about. Yeah. Yeah. So do you find that other people have that kind of, I suppose, misperception between who they really are and what they think they might want? Yes. And so often when we drill down to that, what I think I should have, Mm. it comes down to other people's expectations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For example, in your case, it may be that your parents had the white picket fence and therefore you had this natural assumption, almost like a hangover from your parents that that's what I should have. Yeah. Or this is what all my friends have, therefore I probably should have it. Or this is what happens in Hollywood, therefore I should have it. Yes. Strip that stuff away, that kind of superficial stuff, strip it away and get to the fundamentals of what it, what are someone's core values and, and how does that play out in their lifestyle preferences? That's often what's really going to lead to compatibility. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I mean, I do a lot of work with people on values, even in workplaces, work, you know, values, mm-hmm. understanding your values and, and how they play out and how they drive your behavior and the match between your values and a workplace values is so important. So yeah, it, it does make sense that that's how it works in a relationship setting. And yet I don't think that's part of the everyday conversation about relationships and dating, is it? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. <laughs> You're hopeful. I like it to be. 
part of my mission. I certainly talk about it a lot. Yes. Um, and look, to, to be fair, that is one of the things I like about, you know, some of the more in-depth online dating platforms because they do include, you know, questionnaires about values and personality and that sort of thing. So they are sort of starting to step toward that more deeper level of compatibility. Okay, because that's not something I've looked at for a very long time, so I can imagine they've changed. <laughs> <a> good thing. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you work a lot with, with, is it largely with women or also with men? Mostly with women. Mm-hmm. Um, in my corporate work, a lot of the programs that I deliver are around really addressing, well, you know, we all talk about the, the salary gap. I make a leap from that and talk about the confidence gap. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the research just shows us time and time again that men are twice as likely as women to step up, promote themselves, put their hand up for a promotion or a new role. And fundamentally, I believe that comes back to confidence and and courage to back yourself. It's interesting that you mentioned about the the confidence gap, because I was actually just doing some, I was watching a video for International Women's Day, which was March the 8th. And one of the videos that I watched that, that I really loved was actually some very senior and experienced women in the corporate world, I think from Ernst & Young and other organisations who really were talking about that, you know, that there was a reluctance to support the notion of quotas or to really kind of define where women should be and what they should be in organisations in a structured sense, but instead mm. was really looking at what do we need to do? And, and the theme for International Women's Day was press for progress. And what do we mm. need to do to build up that confidence? You know, they were reflecting that there were women who had all the capabilities and had all of the required background and education and everything they needed to do. And yet they didn't tend to put themselves forward for roles in the same way that men Mm. did or do. Absolutely. And look, I I believe a lot of it comes down to, you know, what we might call micro behaviours. You Mm -hmm. know, you're right, all the big ticket items many women have these days, but it comes down to, you know, presence and our posture and gestures and tone of voice and where we're literally where we're sitting at the table in relation Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. person with influence. And, Mm. you know, there are so many small changes that we can make behavior both verbally and non-verbally that can start to shift that and start to increase the degree to which women's voices are actually heard. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what's the sort of tips or advice that you give women in that situation? Because I know we'll have a lot of listeners who are forging ahead in their careers who might like to kind of, you know, take it to the next level. Sure. What would you suggest? Well, first thing I would suggest is you go and check out Amy Cuddy's fabulous TED Talk on presence mm-hmm. or read mm-hmm. her book. Yes. Um, which is just amazing. And one of the interesting findings here is that it's not just the mind influencing the body, which we know we've known for many years, but also the body can influence the mind. So through posture, and she talks about standing in a power pose like Wonder Woman Mm -hmm. for two minutes, you can actually change your physiology your cortisol levels come down, so your stress levels come down, and your testosterone, which as we know is the assertiveness hormone, goes up. Mm -hmm. And what research has shown is by doing this, you actually are more likely to assert yourself and to take calculated risks in a social situation. So, you know what? I actually practice this. Whenever I'm about to step on a stage, yeah. you will find me things standing there looking like Wonder Woman with my hands <laughs> on my chest out, big grin on my face because it really, really works. So that's definitely something. And then I guess just generally the principle of taking up space. 
for millennial, women have been socialized and trained to take up less space. We cross our legs, we cross our arms, we look down, we make ourselves physically small. And this sends such a clear message to the room that I, I don't value my input. Don't give me some stay because I, I'm really not worth it. So if you can open up your body language and do some, you know, some mansplaying as they call it, <laughs> you don't have to sit with your legs akimbo, but, you know, really chest out, you know, hands on the desk, lean forward. And this is not about being aggressive. It's, hmm. it's more about just standing in your presence and allowing your voice to be heard. Okay. And which is interesting to me because you, you have a background in performance, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, a lady of the stage. And uh-huh. I have increasingly been doing speaking roles and a lot of training and facilitation over the last five years, which I never did previously. And I never saw myself as the kind of person who could or would do that. You know, I'm reserved by nature. I just didn't really think that was me. And yet as I reflect on those experiences, and I even find myself now before I get up in front of a group, I, I'm not sure I've taken it to quite the power posing level yet, although maybe I should try it, but I do Mm. find myself switching into a performance mode. It's like a mental switch as soon as I get up in front of a group that says Mm. I am not a different person, but I'm a different version of myself when I'm in this place. So yeah, that, that kind of mind body connection performance component makes sense in terms of, you know, women being present, if that's the the word, you know, and being a player in perhaps those male-dominated spheres. Yes. And look, there's something to be said for fake it till you become it, which Mm -hmm. again is something that Amy Cuddy says, and it's not fake it until you make it. She actually believes that you will become it. So by physically starting to emulate the things that successful people do, whether that's men or women, you actually start to become it. And physiologically, you will change in that direction too. It's quite Mm -hmm. fascinating. It is. And does this apply Mm -hmm. in the kind of dating world as well? This idea of how you, you know, present yourself physically plays out Mm -hmm. in how you come across to others? Look, I have to admit, I may have one or two clients that every time they go on a date, they spend the first two minutes in the toilets doing their power pose (laughs) and meet their new partner. And this works. It, it Look, it feels so silly if, and you would never do it in public because it would just be odd. <laughs> but in yes. the loop, it's a perfect <laughs> to do it because really it, it, it is just about increasing confidence and, you know, that, that willingness to take a little bit of a social risk. And of course, you know, whether it's in the workplace or in a new social environment, you could do with all the confidence you can get. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's Mm. fascinating. And what about people who have been in relationships for, you know, moving it back to that relationship sphere? What about people who have been in relationships for for quite a period of time? What are the sorts of tips or uh, suggestions that you give to those of us? Well, I think the number one thing that people forget in relationships is that relationships take work. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's not just a set and forget. It is very much an ongoing process. And, you know, if you're two people who are committed to growing together, then, you know, I think the the opportunities are endless. As long as you can be really clear with each other about where you're at and regularly check in, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so easy to settle into patterns of behavior that may or may not serve you, even, you know, from the way you communicate all the way through to, you know, the sexual positions that you use 
many couples can get a little bit too comfortable and it's not necessarily what's serving them. So I think it's a good idea to have regular circuit breakers in a relationship, even if it's just, you know, once a month when you go for your date night or whatever it is that you can do as, as a couple that you have a bit of a check-in, a conscious checking in where you're actually going, this is where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling about where we're at now. These are the thoughts I'm having about our future or this is what you did this week that's been really giving me the shits, you know. <laughs> Just get that stuff out in the open so that you're not on autopilot, so that you're consciously contributing to the direction of the relationship. Okay, and that's, that stuff can be confronting for people at times. I think, you know, maybe if you do have concerns or, or quibbles or something's been frustrating you, you know, for some people it's actually quite confronting to raise that for fear of creating an argument or, you know, are there, are there strategies that you can use to make that a little easier? Absolutely. And I think this is why most people don't do it. Mm. You know, they, they, they push it under the carpet and allow things to fester. And of course that can build resentment and, you know, huge problems down the track. Mm. Look, I think one of the, the great tips here is to address the problem and not the person, you know, mm-hmm. and again, this is something we talk about in corporate all the time, don't yep. we? Yep. Borrow that and, and bring that into personal relationships as well, where I think it's even more critical because we have that emotional connection with our partners, you know, to talk about this is where something's going awry in the relationship as opposed to blaming so it's mm-hmm. not you did this and that's annoyed me, but look, I've noticed that this has developed between us and it's not serving us or it's not working for us. Let's brainstorm this together or let's workshop this and come up with a solution. I think if you can very much approach problems from a non-blaming, non-judgmental position where you can attack the problem and not the person and really be a team, really collaborate towards coming up with a solution. Don't get bogged down in the problem. Acknowledge that it's there. Don't don't spend too long there. Move as quickly as you can into solving that together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's moving that the same thing. Again, we talk about particularly in coaching scenarios, moving away from a problem oh. focus to a solution focus. Absolutely. Yeah, which is quite a skill that not everyone has. <laughs> you got to do it intentionally. It doesn't you happen do. naturally. <laughs> you do. You do. Yeah. So you told us a little bit about how you got into this field and you're still obviously working in the corporate sphere as well. Um, how did you become a TV psychologist? Mm, that's a or, good question. Or, or relationship <laughs> expert. <laughs> yes depending on which media you read. Yes. Well, I was doing quite a bit of media commentary. So, for example, chatting with the Today Show or the project, when when topics came up that related to generally relationships, but also communication and sort of positive psychology-based topics, I was starting to build, you know, a bit of a media presence and built some really good relationships with, with journos and some of the media outlets directly. And then I watched the first series of of Married at First Sight and many friends and colleagues said to me, you should be doing this. And I kind of (laughs) ignored it for a while until I couldn't ignore it anymore and thought, well, maybe it's time to actually put myself out there and step outside of this massive comfort zone that I've Mm. built. Mm. And so I leveraged the networks that I'd built and found out who was casting the show and basically went in there and pitched myself. Yeah. and there wasn't a role available at the time. It was okay. it was a it was a fully cast program, and yep. um, I, I approached them, and and they said at the time that there was room for one more expert on the panel. So I thought, okay, if there's room for one more, I'm going to put myself out there and and see what we can do. And the rest is history, really. <laughs> and what do you think it took? Because I'm always interested in this this idea of stepping outside of our comfort mm-hmm. zones and really 
being prepared to take because they're massive risks. I mean, not a physical risk necessarily. It's not life-threatening, but to our sense of self, to our self-confidence maybe, or certainly to our psychology, to, to throw yourself out there and make yourself vulnerable, which is what you're doing. Yeah. What worked for you? What do you think it was that pushed you over the line to, to do that and take that step? I think an unwavering belief that I could do it. You know, having a background in performance really helped. You know, I, from a performance point of view, and, you know, you mentioned wearing a, wearing a mask or stepping into a role, yep. you know, when you need to. Um, that's something that I've just done so often throughout my life that I know that I can do it. I know that in pretty much any situation that is thrown my way, I can perform. Mm-hmm. So that, that confidence in my capacity to, you know, and also my, my subject matter expertise, you know, knowing that no matter what was thrown my way, I could speak on it and speak confidently on that topic. That, that really helped. But also, you know, coming from that stage background and even a a TV background, I knew that my future was in that realm. I knew that I, I, I just have always known that I've had this potential to bring psychology and performance and in this case, television together in order to advocate for psychology and it's it's just a very it's been very natural to me that there's been no doubt no question of whether this is what I'm going to do it, it's just a very natural destiny for me okay so like a like a sense of vision maybe I know when I'm working with a lot of clients and, and we talk about goal setting and we talk about how do we achieve those goals and and I always like to start with the premise based on the research that you know you need to have a kind of a a longer term vision of and that vision doesn't need to be crystal clear. You don't need to know exactly what it is you're going to be doing or how or when, which is I think where a lot of us get bogged down, but just a kind of a sense or that sort of in my coaching masters, we talked about a fuzzy vision, you know, having that fuzzy vision of, of where it is you really want to go and then being able to draw that back and put those steps in place to make that happen. I suppose as the opportunities arise as much as anything else. I have to say my vision wasn't fuzzy at all. I may or may not have had a vision <laughs> board. And on that vision board were pictures of TVs. Okay. Literally. Okay. Okay. So you'd progress yeah. from the fuzzy vision to something far more tangible. Yes. <laughs> it okay. still is. Well, I think that's mm. that's informative as well that, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. it is that process of getting really clear and using the vision boards and using some of those tangible tools to help create goals and yes. then taking advantage of the opportunities or making those opportunities as they arise, which kind of Mm. brings us back to that conversation about women and their roles at work, doesn't it? That we need to understand ourselves. We need to know the benefits of this kind of notion of self-belief and confidence and to really grow those in order to be able to step outside of the comfort zone and and get where we want to be. And to start putting ourselves forward for things we're not ready for yet. I think there's a lot to be said in that. You know, we've all heard of the research about, you know, men versus women applying for a role and women believing they need to have 100% of the selection criteria ticked off, whereas men only need 60%. You know, let's play the way, play with that way that men do it. And I don't mean to behave like men, but to to model that Mm -hmm. behaviour and to, to take lessons from that and actually do it in our own feminine way. This is, I think, one of the big lessons that I've learned over the years is that I can jump and then think about building a parachute later. <laughs> and it, it doesn't always work, 
but I know that I can keep jumping and I do, I keep jumping. Yep. So have there been, I hesitate to call them failures, but have there been times where you've jumped and haven't landed where you hoped to? Absolutely. Alan, I've been jumping for 15 years <laughs> when it comes to the media, quite literally. I mean, I, I did a, a course, a one-week intensive course in TV presenting, I think it's probably about it's probably 13 or 14 years ago now and have been knocking on doors ever since. So that's a lot of rejection. That's <laughs> a lot of no's um, that have led to this, you know, apparent overnight success. It's been a long haul. Yeah, but <laughs> that's, you know, that's testament to the notion of resilience, isn't it? This idea that, you know, resilient people will keep getting up and having another go when they get knocked back and, and when that hurts and when that makes us sad and frustrated and sometimes perhaps doubt ourselves for a short period at least. But, you know, it is a matter of just getting back up and trying again. So would you say that this has made you stronger and more resilient? Uh, it, it has, but I have to say, I, I even still have moments of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my partner's constantly having to challenge me on it when, you know, I'll doubt myself and start, you know, imagining that I'm just this green little rookie that nobody values. And yep. look at you, you're on the highest rating show on TV at the moment. You know, you're getting two and a half million viewers every show. You need to step up and, and own this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, even though I consider myself a very confident person, I still need reminders of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's lovely that you've got him there to kind of do that, you know, what yeah. we call evidence testing. Look at the evidence. The evidence uh, is that, you know, you are succeeding in your chosen domain, even though those doubts still creep in, which is pretty normal, yeah. I think. I'm, I know um, I have them. <laughs> it is normal. And I think it's good to acknowledge that that is normal. It, you know, it's a bit of a, um, I'm making hand movements and you can't see them. Because <laughs> I can see them. But <laughs> <laughs> the ups and downs are very normal is what I'm trying to illustrate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. Wonderful. And so 12 months ago or thereabouts, almost 12 months ago, mm-hmm. you took another big step out of your comfort zone and packed your lovely little family up, left Australia and moved to reside in Bali, which is where you are, where, you are, where I'm speaking to you from right now. What what prompted that? Well, it was really responding to opportunity and the stage of our life that we were in. So my partner took a package from his job Mm -hmm. and started an online business and it just took off. He's just absolutely, you know, risen to fame. He's, he's replaced his corporate salary within three months. And, you know, we're now 12 months down the track and it's, it's really blooming. And so we got to the point where we realized, well, for me, most of my career is either online. Um, you know, I do a lot of coaching via Skype mm-hmm. or it's event-based. So, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a series of workshops or it's filming, it's usually project-based and it's usually Sydney anyway. And we were living in Melbourne mm-hmm. and it kind of occurred to us that there was no real reason for us to be based in say Melbourne because, you know, we we're really quite location independent. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, if we could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? What, what a wonderful <laughs> position to be in. <laughs> yeah. And our daughter's only three, so it's and she was two at the time, and it's a really good time, you know, for her before we get into the serious education stage of her life. And, you know, she's got a wonderful life here. We all have. We're really, really loving it. Mm-hmm. And so 
I suppose, again, I mean, it, it comes back to that same question I asked before about that jumping out of your comfort zone. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think really made the difference? Because I think lots of us think about moving overseas or traveling or, or starting a new adventure and we're held back by concerns about practical things or what other people might think or mm-hmm. maybe it's just anxiety about the unknown. What, what do you think made the difference yeah. to you to actually get to that point? Look, it was quite easy for me because this is my second expat experience, as mm-hmm. you know, and, and my first experience was to the Middle East. I was a single person. I literally put my stuff in storage, got on a plane and went to the Middle East by myself. And that was incredibly daunting and so difficult and really challenging, you know, day, on a day-to-day basis, being a single person in an expat environment. Whereas this time around, I've got a partner and a little girl and literally within the first week, we went to another three-year-old's birthday and met our whole community of friends that we now see. <laughs> the wonderful day. joy of children as a form of connection. Yes, exactly. And it's just this instant expat community and it's so loving and so supportive and I, I just feel, you know, I, I'm just held in the arms of this amazing community. So that's definitely made it a lot easier. And so... You are a mother raising a little girl, raising a daughter, and you, we've talked a lot about women and confidence and self-belief and taking chances and those sorts of things. What will be the advice that you give to your daughter as she grows up about being the best version of herself? Mm. One of the things I'm very passionate about with young women is educating them about boundaries and, you know, certainly in, in this Me Too climate and this mm-hmm. whole awakening that is happening globally at the moment, I'm really interested in how do we educate young women to become comfortable saying no. Mm-hmm. And something that's been really lovely that I've noticed with, with my daughter Maddie is she's a little blonde, blue-eyed thing. And when we arrived here in Asia, you know, particularly for the first probably six months, because she's so different looking, being around a lot of the Indonesian people, they'd come to her, they'd touch her, they'd pick her up, kiss her, even on the lips sometimes. Mm. And at first she was just very complacent and, you know, happy and she'd just go along with it. And now I've noticed that she will literally put her hand up and say no okay, if she doesn't yep. touch her. And that, that's not something I've taught her. That is something she's naturally learning herself. Mm. And I'm really encouraged by that. I look at that and think um, this is something I really want to harness and help her develop further. You know, I I believe my job as her mum is to help her build self-esteem, full stop. I think everything else will take care of itself as long as she's clear about who she is and what she wants and what she doesn't want. Mm -hmm. And seeing her start to assert herself physically like that is very reassuring to me. Yeah, that is such an important skill. I've actually been doing a lot of work in workplaces around managing aggressive behavior, you know, for frontline staff dealing with customers. And one of the things we talk about is the need to be able to assert ourselves, to feel that it's okay to say, you know what, you can't treat me like this, which I think has been a challenge a long time um, in a lot of workplaces because we've had this kind of notion of the customer is always right and that somehow we're just expected to cop abuse or bad language or sometimes even physical threats and and domination so this idea Mm. of being able to assert so we're sort of teaching some practical skills which are very much exactly what you've described maddie is doing (laughs) about being Mm. able to put your hand up and say you know what this is this is not okay this is not acceptable to me 
and my hope. And I have been told that little, some little kids get taught this as part of their preschool education, the idea that you can put your hand up and say, no, you know, stop it. I don't like it or, you know, no, right. don't do that. But being able to kind of, I suppose, maintain that throughout, <laughs> through to adulthood, mm. oh, particularly when it gets complex. Yeah. Dating and relationships, you know, date rape and acquaintance rape are just so prevalent, particularly at that, you know, that young adult university age. Mm. Um, in fact, this is what I'm writing a book about, um, is about dating. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I have an app, an app in development as well. And, you know, this is something I'm very passionate about because I, I just see so many people, not just women, but, but men as well, putting themselves in unsafe situations and not being aware that they can actually empower themselves to take some verbal and nonverbal action that will protect themselves. You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to just accept the way that someone responds to you. You can actually lead that situation. And, and you know, that self-leadership in dating is something that is quite new and, you know, people haven't talked a lot about in the past. No, they haven't. And I've heard some really interesting conversations over Twitter and, and other things that were sort of started by the Me to campaign that really suggested that, you know, some of the complexities in those relationships or those situations are, they are quite nuanced, you know, the signals that people give and people's ability to understand those signals. So I suppose the classic is that, you know, women are sort of, they think they're sending signals that say, no, I'm not interested in this, but men are not necessarily picking up those signals. And the women, there's, there's a lot of assumption and a lack of clarity, I suppose, around how we interpret our body language and even the things that we say. So, so interesting that that's a, a, a book topic for you. Yes. And you mentioned nuance. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and they're even now starting to talk about different types of consent. So mm-hmm. yes, there's affirmative consent, but there's also enthusiastic consent. Yes. Yes. But this is great in educating men about how to read the type of consent or the type of response a woman is giving them. So I think there's education to be done on both sides. Yeah. And I think one of the conversations I heard was the notion that really it's about having empathy and and really being able to imagine what it's like to be that other person in that situation so that you're better able to read those signals. And and that was something that, and I can't remember, I'll have to dig out the reference. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But it was a really interesting discussion of the importance of having empathy and, and true empathy, you know, that ability to really imagine yourself in that situation, in that moment, to be able to mm. then pick up on some of those nuances of the, of the messages that people are receiving. And this is tricky for men and women because, you know, as we know, women tend to be more attuned emotionally and tend to be more into reading what's going mm-hmm. on in that situation. It's a bit tougher for men, I think. I, I don't believe it comes as naturally to them. I think they are just as skilled if they want to apply themselves. But in that situation, they tend to be less focused on reading the situation and tend to be a little bit more self-driven, particularly if the hormones are flowing. Mm-hmm. So I think there's you know, a lot to be done in terms of education of men as well as women. Yeah, well, look, we'll look forward to seeing the book when it comes out and finding out so more. Does it, does it have a title yet or is it still a working title? It's a working title. I'm playing around with Me Too before I do. Oh, okay. I like that. Okay, That's cool and very topical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Finally, I suppose 
any other tips that you have? I mean, we have talked about confidence and building self-esteem and self-belief and those sorts of things in different sorts of realms. So how it applies to relationships, how it applies to uh, our careers, particularly say for women, what would be the kind of three top tips that you would give our listeners if they are wanting to develop their confidence and, and try something new, whether that's on the dating scene, whether it's with a current relationship or whether it's in a career? Okay. So I guess that my first tip is always to invest in yourself first. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but what I really mean by that is to fill your own cup. You know, if your needs are not being met, then you have no chance of meeting other people's. So even if that's just spending a little bit of time once a week journaling or meditating or doing a yoga class, whatever it is for you, going for a run, seeing a movie, whatever you need to do to invest in yourself. So incredibly important. Um, And I love anything that involves self-reflection. So, you know, whether you're using an app or using a journal, really great stuff. Yep. The second one is really, and, you know, this is a theme we've been talking about a lot today, is about being proactive and taking control of your own destiny don't be a victim, you know, whether it's in your career or your relationships or, you know, any aspect of your life, your health, take control, find out what is within your control and go for it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always things that are outside of your control. Don't waste your energy on that stuff. Go for the stuff that you can actually influence and make a change. Okay. And the third one is that constant checking in. So whether that's with yourself or with your partner or with your dating buddies, you know, if, if you're in the dating realm, constant checking in because, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's very easy to fall into patterns that don't serve you. So having those little wake-up moments, whether it's weekly, monthly, whatever works for you, those mechanisms to make sure that you're staying consciously aware and intentionally stepping into whatever the goals are that you're working towards. Fabulous. Thank you. And where can people find out more? I mean, some of us are watching you on the TV, but this, mm-hmm. this that's just really just one little slither, one segment of, of all all of the exciting work that you're doing, where can we find out more? Well, you can go to my website, which is melanieshilling.com or follow me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Perhaps we'll include in the show notes a link through to the Date Ready Project. Uh, yes. Which is my, yes, my eight-week online program, which is really about preparing you psychologically for the dating world. So really a, a lot of what we've talked about today, so dating yourself, getting your mindset clear, developing a very specific personal dating brand, and then starting to look at strategies and tactics. Okay, um, cool. So that's the Date Ready Project. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And any other special places we can find you or, or uh, ways in which people can access that knowledge that's in your mind, these sorts of things we've talked about today? <laughs> also my blog, which sits on my website. So loads of, of dating advice there. I also do a lot of work with Nine Honey, which is the online female-focused digital platform that Channel 9 has. Mm-hmm. I currently have a 16-part video series. It's going out to two videos per week all to do with dating and relationship advice. Okay. And that's on Nine Honey? Yes. Ninehoney.com.au. And I will put all of these details in the show notes. Great. Thank you, Mel, for all of that. That's That was a wide-ranging conversation. It, it's so interesting it that you can sort of start <laughs> out thinking, we're going to talk about this and then it just traverses mm-hmm. into, you know, conversations about women's rights and confidence and self-belief. But I think it all wrapped up very nicely and I think it really 
is all part of what always strikes me in, in all of my interactions with you and, and the work that you do online and following in social media is this courage to try new things, um, an entrepreneurial spirit as well, I suppose, and a, a commitment to women and really helping women to become the best versions of themselves to fulfill their potential. So it's very apt yeah. that you're here on the podcast with me talking about that stuff. Thank you. I will talk about this stuff with you anytime. <laughs> we'll have to make another date for a future episode. Absolutely. Lots of things to talk when my about. book comes out. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Any yeah. idea when that might be? No. How long is a no. piece of string? Exactly. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. But we will, we will keep <laughs> listeners posted. And, yes. um, and yeah, absolutely. We will have you back to discuss the book when it does come out. Sounds great, Ellen. Thank you very much, Mel. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so much fun talking to Mel Schilling, psychologist and relationship coach, about her work on TV, in organisations and in the dating world. If you'd like to find out more about Mel's Date Ready Project, I've included a link in the show notes for today's episode. You'll find it at potential.com.au forward slash podcast, along with Mel's social media links, her top tips for building confidence and a transcript of the full interview. If you're enjoying the podcast, please let me and others know by giving it a rating in iTunes. This will spread the word about the great guests I'm chatting to and give more people the opportunity to learn, flourish and fulfil their potential. You might also like to join the Potential Psychology email community by signing up to my regular newsletter at potential.com.au forward slash subscribe. This will keep you up to date with the latest podcast episodes and blog posts, link you up to top articles in positive psychology, performance and well-being, and give you the behind the scenes here at Potential Psychology HQ. In episode four, I'll be talking to Shell Taylor, a clinical psychologist who works with kids and families. Shell's an expert in neurodevelopment, how the brain develops in kids. And I'll be asking her for tips for helping kids when they're stressed, anxious or angry, how to recognise the signs of a child who's not coping, and how we can be the best parents and carers that we can be. The best neurodevelopmental reward you can give a child is your time, your attention, your praise, your love, your relationship. Join me for that interview and have a great week.